Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. This is another free bonus, which is the audio from a great panel that I co-hosted with Walker Bragman for Paste Magazine for Paste Politics, which we recorded at Paste Studio. To find video of that, you can just go to pastemagazine.com slash studio. Again, that's pastemagazine.com slash studio. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Halper, and uh, we are reporting live from the Pace Studio for Pace Politics. And I'm Walker Bragman, and we're really excited because we have a pretty kick-ass panel here today. If we do say so ourselves. And uh, we will go from left to right. We have Aaron Mate, who is a reporter for The Real News and a journalist who writes for The Nation. Welcome. We have Malika Jabali, who is an activist, an attorney, and a writer for places including Current Affairs. We have Nomiki Kanst, who's a Renaissance woman, but for now we'll just say she's a... I've never seen someone offended by that. She's a a medieval woman. No, and she's she's running for public advocate. So welcome, everyone. And Walker, everyone knows. Whatevs. Walker from Paste... Walker, journalist, also, anything else you want to say? I don't know, that's, that, that, that right. works. We're a very formal show, as you can tell. Prolific <laughs> tweeters, you guys are yeah. leaving out the, the... Oh, and one of the only yeah. persons, people to write about Yemen, so oh. thank you for doing that, because that's something that I think no one else pays attention to. Talk about it. Yeah, talk about it. So right now, we're going to talk about the midterms. First impressions? Hot takes? I have a hot take. Okay, cool. So, Great. you know, last night, there was, there was a lot of depression. I think a lot of folks watching um, cable news, the national news, were really upset by what happened in Florida and Texas and uh, who knows what's going to happen in, in Georgia. Uh, Randy Bryce, who had a lot, we had a lot of hopes for, didn't win, and it was by a larger margin than some predicted. But with that being said, you know, we won Congress and right. we got 100 women elected to Congress. Right. And the New York State Senate, you know, to be a little bit focused here, has been a real fight. And the New York State Senate is blue, which means Andrew Cuomo, who wants to be president, can't hide behind the Senate anymore. And that can make a huge difference on national politics if New York is able to pass things like, uh, you know, Medicare for all, campaign finance reform. Uh, they can, you know, immigration reform. There's a whole slew of issues that have been blocked by the New York State Senate uh, that that we could lead on more so than California, because California, even though they have a supermajority, isn't passing a lot of the stuff because of the the corporate interests. But I think now um, the Senate makeup is going to be pretty strong. So you're saying not only will there be differences in New York State, but that this will have a national effect. Yes. And how does that happen? It just kind of sets a precedent. Well, yeah. I mean, it, New York is a fairly important state. We have Wall Street here. You know, big real estate is more or less uh, centered here. Uh, Donald Trump is from here. We have a couple of, you know, potential presidential candidates who are based here, from Michael Bloomberg to Senator Kirsten Gillibrand to Governor Cuomo, who is sitting on a coffer of thirty-plus million dollars that he could potentially use in a in a presidential primary. That's huge. So, you know, just the the idea of New York is a big deal. The media industry is based here, but if New York is able to pass these reforms, uh, it puts more pressure on California to do so and other progressive states. I mean, don't forget, we passed marriage equality in Iowa first. Mm. That's embarrassing. And New York is like, well, we passed marriage equality like eight years ago, but well after (laughs) Iowa. So if New York can lead on these things, I think it it creates a safe space for other states to do the same thing. Great. Um, Aaron, were you surprised by any results? Were you disappointed by any results? Uh, anything stand out as either good or bad? Since you're kind of a prolific mediaite. Well, I'm also kind of a political downer. So, right. And I, I feel down, I do. Like I. Uh, but then you shouldn't be feel down because you should have already expected it. That's true. Well, you know, I didn't expect Vangelis. I didn't like. I didn't no, expect Vangelis to lose so badly. At least. Oh yeah. So I, by the way, just so, so everyone's on the same page uh, out here. So we're talking. You mentioned Bra- um, Randy Bryce of. Um, 
Wisconsin. Um, of course, Gillum in Florida, Beto in Texas, um, Stacey Abrams is, has, is contesting, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, Ben Jealous in Maryland, uh, and then we'll get to the victories. But those were the, to varying degrees, surprising or not surprising um, losses. Thompson as well in Kansas. Oh, yeah. And he did my show, so I don't I'll know. I'll start with the positive. Okay. The reenfranchisement of yes. uh, people being convicted in Florida is amazing, and that, that's exciting, and I'm encouraged about what that means for future elections. But, uh, you know, the fact that the best that Democrats could do was just take the House, and as it stands right now, by not that much, I think they could have, I don't think their margin of, uh, like, their lead in the House is that big, or at least as big as it could have been, or was predicted. Um, after two years of Donald Trump, is this to me depressing? The fact that like the Senate wasn't even competitive, and there were so many things to run on. There was like the tax heist, the biggest upward of, uh, transfer of wealth in U.S. history, the further gutting of our pretty meager healthcare system, uh, the uh, the pulling out of the Iran deal and uh, tearing up the Paris Accords. Like these were awful things that I think could have mobilized a lot of voters and crucially and this is like my main takeaway is that it's a last night is a, is a reminder to me that pol like politics as usual in terms of trying to win over like a small number of swing votes and like mostly white voters is just not going to cut it and what about all those people who stay on the sidelines i mean there was record turnout last night but still relative to other industrialized countries it's still pretty weak and so for democracy we've set the bar really low and as a result, I think that's reflected in the results last night. Malika, you are in uh, Georgian, yes. correct? Yep. Uh, as in the Raised state, in Georgia, not the not country. The country. Um, <laughs> if you can't tell, popular belief. Maybe we can just talk about the results from last night in Georgia. Um, if you were surprised, and why you think it, what happened happened. So I was raised in Georgia, so. The fact that she even got that close is a surprise to us. The fact that Andrew Gillum got that close is a surprise to us. I think just kind of taking a step back and thinking about your earlier question in terms of first takes, um, it's a protracted uh, struggle. So I'm just going to put on my activist hat. Yeah. We look at electoral politics as one tool. It's not a panacea. We're going to see these types of swings regardless, as long as we have a two-party system, as long as we live under capitalism. We're going to see these swings where people have economic anxieties and they might go one way or the other. And every election might feel like a disappointment if we're not, you know, if Democrats aren't winning. Um, at the same time, the two-party system right now is very limited. So there are a lot of people who've been who felt disenfranchised for a really long time who don't feel that they're voice is represented in politics, but if the Democratic Party can engage people and excite people, which is what they did in Florida, which is what they did in Georgia, then they can bring a huge amount of people out. So obviously we all know that Florida and Georgia, actually I'm not too sure about Florida right now, but Georgia's dealing with an immense amount of voter suppression. So Brian Kemp, he purged about 1.4 million voters who are registered but just are inactive. If we're looking at that, if we're looking at the polling sites that he closed earlier that the ACLU had to file a lawsuit to open those back up, and these are in rural districts where there are black people who live in these rural areas. And they also suppress the vote in many urban communities. So I actually saw this. This has been going on for years. I was raised in a county called DeKalb. It's one of the most diverse counties in the country. It went overwhelmingly for Stacey Abrams. And they and initiated voter suppression tactics against Cynthia McKinney, a very mm -hmm. radical candidate from 2000, right. 2004, and they ousted her. 
And we've been seeing that since then. So this is an ongoing issue. But the fact that she even got all that despite, you know, the voter uh, suppression is huge. And we should take that as a win. Right. But you would you would say that the 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 maybe kind of piggybacking on what, what you were saying about how it, the win was was less than perhaps expected or, or hoped for, that maybe there was a, a lack of excitement um, in, so I among I think Democrats. it I think it varies. So again, if Democrats can find a candidate to be excited for, then they can win. Right. And these are going to be issues that translate across race and class that are going to be intersectional. In 2016, we didn't see that so much with the Democratic right. candidate. However, Stacey Abrams was reaching across race. She was talking about you know a multiracial coalition of voters to support you know a living wage to support uh, Medicaid expansion. expansion of med exactly the expansion of Medicaid collective bargaining, which is unheard of right. in Georgia. We're yeah. a right to work state, which obviously you know Republicans with their shenanigans right to work means that you're right, you have a right to get fired very yeah. easily. It's anti-union, but it, they like to make it sound like it's a free, about yeah. freedom. Exactly, and she's pro-union, which yeah. you would not expect right. somebody to get that many votes in Georgia with that type of platform. Can I just amend yeah. my downerness? Yeah. Like I don't apply that across the board to every single state, and especially you know learning about Georgia of the last little while. Like that to me is a vote that just straight up stolen, you know, yeah. looking at, at what's happening. I mean, it's obvious. Like, that's right. just straight up voter suppression. And right. Stacey Abrams did everything that could and possibly be And it's still doing. Yes. Yeah, still yes. Doing. So yeah. she's not... So this is actually... I wanted to ask you, you kind of um, spoke to this a second ago, Malika, but uh, a piece, the piece that you wrote in Current Affairs called The Color of Economic Anxiety, which you wrote uh, before the midterm, you said, instead of addressing the conservative economic policies that defined the Democratic Party for decades and helped undermine black progress, Clinton attempted to appeal to black voters' identity. So my question is, uh, and you, you kind of spoke to this, if you think that the Dems did change their appeal this time around, especially in the Midwest um, and in the South, and you think it changed how black voters turned out and the results? Um, I think it I think it depends. So I know in Wisconsin I actually went back there earlier last month because that's where you did the reporting for that piece. Sorry, right. I so I yeah. just wanted to do wanted to do like an update uh, yeah. one year later. Where are people thinking um, going into the midterm elections, the general elections? And I spoke with uh, an activist there, a political organizer named Angela Ling. Mm -hmm. She's the president of an organization called Block, Black Leaders Organizing for Communities. And I think the key there was about the ground game. Mm -hmm. um, it was talking about economic issues, but actually going to these communities. I think the, the main problem with Hillary Clinton in 2016, I mean, there are a bevy of things. Obviously, I think economic anxieties is, an, is a major issue. Um, but how you reach people despite that is important. And she never even stepped foot in Wisconsin. So if you're dealing with, you know, the highest rate of black male joblessness in the country, which is what black male, males are experiencing in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee specifically, if you're dealing with the highest rate of black male incarceration in the country, at least go to the state. At least go, you know, to Milwaukee where this is happening at ground zero. And she did, she did not do that. And everybody remembered that. So I think this time... The uh, Democratic forerunner, Tony Evers, he actually went around to these communities. Block endorsed him. I think having that kind of cosign let people know, okay, at least he is thinking about us. As to how much, you know, people can get over their disillusionment if they're dealing with economic anxieties, it remains to be seen. Some people might be excited even if they're poor and dealing with, you know, evictions or whatever, they might still be engaged if somebody at least is looking at them and going to their doors and talking to them. Right. Now, do we think that the the national Democratic brand 
what role do we think that that played in in this election? So this is uh, this is actually what I was just going to say. Last year I was in Wisconsin as well, and and it was very clear that they were hustling very hard to rebuild the infrastructure of of. Democrats, not necessarily the party, uh, but Democrats. Like, what does a Democrat mean? They weren't waiting for the DNC to step in or even the state Democratic Party to be fully funded. People were just kind of organically doing it on their own and defining the, the message on their own. When I look at this election right now, and, um, you know, we talked about this a little bit beforehand, you see races like Beto O'Rourke and, and Gillum and Stacey Abrams. They deserve that attention and they should be getting that attention. But what I worry about is when all of the attention and money is, is, is focused on candidates, just like presidential candidates were our addiction for the Democratic Party, what happens in between? Where's the movement building? And I believe that the Democratic Party institutionally should be decentralized so that that movement building is happening in between, so that the voter suppression... You know, the voter suppression didn't happen yesterday. The voter suppression's been going on for decades. It's decades in the making when we close our eyes and we're focused on other things right. that, frankly, I think uh, are a result of the centralized Democratic Party. So, actually, Party. I want to ask about that. What potential, what could the Democrats do? This is a big question about voter suppression. How much does their working on other things take away from what they could be doing to lower voter suppression or to fight it? Well, I think, what, you know, the DNC traditionally has had a pretty good legal hotline for, like, the night of the election and right. preparation. They send lawyers out to multiple states. They do that for presidential years. They do it for key races. I do think they take that very seriously. But it's not enough. I mean, one of it's the biggest things... It's very much the night of, though, right? The night of, I mean, sometimes in preparation. To, to, to challenge gerrymandering more? Or yeah, yeah, more. and I think they're doing some of that. But, again, if you're not operating in states... And I, and I love the fact that we won 100, 100 women... Well, they're not all Democrats, but 100 women ran and won, and we won Congress back. I think that is some of the movement work that needs to happen in between. But when you don't fund your parties, when everybody's so obsessed with candidates, and then you have consultants who are building these outside organizations, and, you know, this is a weird plug I'm going to give to Tom, you know, Tom Perez here. Tom Perez gets a lot DNC of crap. Chair. DNC chair. He gets a lot of crap. Um, he should, frankly, because I think the DNC has a lot of work to do, and I don't think it's taken it as seriously as it, it should. I'm no longer on this Democratic commission, so I can say whatever I want. I mean, do they have Do they have a message? Do they have Well, a- message isn't so much it. You know, what happens is you have these outside forces who are like, the DNC is not doing their job, they're not doing their job. Here, come donate to our C4 over here. Uh-huh. And so all the money goes to the C4s, which have their own agendas, and it's supporting their own candidates. And so that money, it's, it's like, it's a chicken or egg thing. Like, you need to put the money into the DNC so that it goes to state parties, but then like... The DNC is sucking, so nobody wants to give money to the DNC. So the state parties need the money so they can build the infrastructure to win the legislatures back and fight gerrymandering. But if they have no money, they can't do that. Right. Well, I guess I should clarify. When, when I say they have no message, I mean, the party has, I mean, it, it's done some changes. It's implemented some changes. Uh, a lot of them are sort of aesthetic. Sure. Um, but... You know, they cho- they elected Pelosi and Schumer and Perez to lead it into the future, and that leadership has really looked kind of like what it was before, interference in primaries, uh, the same lack of prioritization of the state races, the same fundraising emails that are policy-free, and, and the same refusal to, to coalesce around a, a populist, uh, pla- populist platform. So, I mean, does that, that has to have... Progressive populist right, platform, to, yeah. but that that has to have some effect, right, on on the yeah. on the, the races. I mean, it's funny because I feel like that's always my perspective, but I actually think that, like, the fact that 
Stacey Abrams and Gillum came so close. I think, like, they did, I mean, I'm very impressed and happy and encouraged by the fact that Stacey Abrams is contesting this because we never see that. So let's say she loses just to see a Democrat. Imagine if Clinton, well, imagine if Gore had done that, right? Gore, it was like a no-brainer. I think that it's kind of related to what you were saying about the <clears throat> the messaging and the position of the Democrat because it's kind of unapologetically. Well, it's like the candidates are succeeding despite that. Exactly, not, right. Not because of the, the party's leadership. Right. Well, I think despite. that goes back to the point that no one's looking for the DNC to save them. No one's looking for the Democrats to save them. You know, Stacey Abrams is, is being a strong woman, as she should be, and she's saying, you know, we're contesting this. It's, right. it, you know, the buck stops at her. Yeah. And she knows what went down. And you hear parties pressure these candidates to get out of a race, not, you know, why? push the, what, I don't know why. Like Everybody's got a different agenda. Dinner parties or because consulting? I don't understand where that comes from. I think it depends on the race. Yeah. Um, you know, they probably have a little bit more room with Georgia than other races, but. And Aaron, as someone who's covered Russiagate a lot, um, and we saw that ultimately the Dems, despite their what, two years minus like two months of, of nonstop coverage and the media's nonstop coverage of Russiagate, they kind of stopped talking about it. So I want to know what damage, if any, hint, hint, you thought has been, uh, happened as a result of the focus on Russiagate. I think this hyper-focus on this conspiracy theory that Trump uh, and the Kremlin engaged in a, in a high-level collusion scheme to release emails on a certain schedule in order to win the presidency, I guess that's the theory, um, or maybe the Russians stole some voter information and gave that to Trump for him to consult. I think the hyper-focus on that, it got a lot of Democratic stalwarts some primetime uh, cable news slots. They got to appear on cable news and talk about this and, and, and speak about how they're bravely standing up to the compromised president. Uh, it helped them and it got ratings for all the outlets that promoted it. But I think that it totally sidelined everybody else because what are we supposed to do? I mean, we're supposed to all revere Mueller and, and protect him at all costs and think that he's gonna solve all our problems and get rid of this nightmare in the Oval Office. So, which then leaves everybody on the sidelines and there's nothing to get involved in. So like, you know, there was people, there was mobilization around like, a couple of things like the uh, like the Muslim ban and the and, and misogyny and uh, anti-immigrant cruelty, but aside from that, there was not that much mobilization. Like the tax heist, yeah. there wasn't like huge major ra like rallies and actions. And so I think that RussiaGate kind of like both raised expectations that Trump was going to get impeached because he's a he's a tr he's a Kremlin dupe, uh, and also and left no and left people on the sidelines because there's not much to get right. involved in. And, you know, this is, a, to me, a part of a, going back to the Democratic brand question, I think the, the problem, like the reason, part of the reason Russiagate exists and the space in which it's created is because Democrats don't have a real commitment to anything substantial that can win over people. So they need constant things to, to jump on to like, to like do performative wokeness and performative resistance. And Russiagate was that opportunity. Um, if you look at who's been successful for Democrats in the last 30 years, it's been it's basically a couple of people. Uh, we had in 2006, there was so much backlash against Bush that Democrats did well. But in terms of national candidates, we had Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. They did well. But, but if you look at them, they share, I think, a particular characteristic, which is that they're able to come across as being principled and lofty and, and caring while really still following the same centrist democratic corporate neoliberal playbook. Everybody else like uh, Michael Dukakis, Al Gore, Hillary Clinton, they're not very uh, appealing people. So basically like Democrats national brand 
relies on essentially fooling people into yeah. thinking that like their leaders are like noble uh, and or and, or, de or in touch. Yeah, right? or in touch. Exactly, the other in touch. Thing, I, I feel your pain. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, failure of Republicans. Yeah, and and it, and I just don't think it's enough. And like to run a, to run it on the fact that Demo that the Republicans are cruel and they want to take away even more of uh, like of your health care. I mean, that that can maybe win the House in this election, but to win over new voters and to like actually have a real wave, it just, it's not going to cut it. Well, can I just make one point about Russia? Because this is something I think this is, it's a business model. The media and the Democratic Party make money off of controversy. And before the election cycle starts, right, what filled in that exactly. space. Right. Yeah. You can talk about all these house races in, in like December of last year, mm -hmm. but you could talk about Russia all day long and get those Russia emails and just in time for the horse race to start, oh look it, we forgot about Russia. And it makes money for, for both of these two industries. Mm -hmm. Now, Malika, you, in in your article uh, that, we will, that we will keep referencing, the color of economic anxiety, <laughs> you, you had a great, you had a great line about, about Milwaukee that um, in, in this one neighborhood, the, the jobs left, but the police presence remained. Mm -hmm. And, and it just, it, that, that line summed up for me kind of the, the, the feeling of, of what you were, what you were trying to, to get across. It, it's just this hopelessness that, that is, is so pervasive around America today. And um, when when we talk about what the Democrats have done to to bring out the 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 vote and inspire people, I mean, do you see that inspiration when when you go around? Do you see that that people are inspired, or do you feel like there is a lot of room for improvement? I think there is a lot of room for improvement, with the caveat that um, if. I think it should come from the ground. So I think grassroots organizations, I think activists, I think organizers should decide what their political um, process, what the next steps are going to be for them. So if the Democratic Party is not it, which is what Khalif Rainey, who's an alderman in Milwaukee, if he thinks that there is an independent political party that can come from this eventually, then that might be the, the avenue. Because right now, we're looking at democratic reforms, we're looking at reforms to capitalism, even if you think about the people who are considered the most left in the Democratic Party who've been successful, AOC and Bernie Sanders, they're not talking about radically transforming capitalism. And I think as long as you have- why they're alive, probably. Also that, I mean, how they got, got in office. But as, as long as we have that, we're also going to have- we're going to have a prison industrial complex right. that you know over incarcerates black men. You're going to have joblessness. You're going to have manufacturing companies that have a race to the bottom and they're moving their operations to China and Mexico, which is exactly what happened in Milwaukee. And a lot, right. what a lot of so to answer your question, it depends on where you go. I think the you know the black voters are not a monolith. In right. the South, you're going to see a little bit more economic opportunity. There's a reverse great migration happening right now where more people are moving back to, like, my home state of Georgia. We're actually the number one recipient of New York migrants. So wow. black people moving from New York are going to Georgia. So there is, ha, there's been an uptick in people moving from California and all the places that they went right. to during the Great Migration back to the South. So you're gonna keep bouncing around because America honestly is just not the place to be if you're looking for any sort of reprieve from capitalism. It's not going to happen. But it just, it just seems to me that these issues exist and they don't get talked about. And both parties are sort of content with not talking about them. And that creates this this void that gets filled by by whoever decides to fill it and more often than not it's some angry guy willing to point a finger at the most Somebody. vulnerable right. 
communities. You, you or you know? got a guy pointing his finger at the at inequality, which is much better. Finger wagging. Is, is that a Bernard? That's a Bernard. Uh, it's okay, the same Bernard it. thing. Which is what I always think. I mean, I, I say this all the time. I sound like a broken record. But, like, <laughs> you don't fight a right-wing populist with a moderate. You fight a right-wing populist with an exciting progressive um, populist who, like, like we were saying about feeling people's pain, right? We all know Trump was fake. He doesn't care about people, and he doesn't feel their pain. But he kind of sold it, right? Bernie Sanders does care about people's pain, and he does have the, the policies that help people. Clinton, and forget, I'm not just focusing, I mean, moving forward, right? Like, politicians who don't make it clear that they feel people's pain, I think, and who don't actually offer policies, they have, those are the people who lose. And the people who try to get everyone and try to be moderate, I don't get why people don't understand that being a moderate, it's not just bad policy, but it's bad politics. You just don't run against Donald Trump by being moderate. I think, yes, and especially not in this climate. So Bill Clinton won, but I think what a lot, you know, when he ran in, I guess it was 92 and 96. And what a lot of people don't realize is that he had to really sell himself to the black community because they were pretty. Arsenio. Right. It was, he didn't win them over. So in midterm elections, like he was struggling and it really took a lot because people were still struggling with these same economic issues then. So it took a identity politics. So it might work in the short run. You know, just weaponizing right. identity politics, I should and say. And at the same time, dog whistling to racists. Absolutely. Yeah. And taking, He's you know, talented. Very taking Walmart versatile. money, being a corporatist, and also saying, you know, welfare queens and, and well, he didn't say that, but he that, was still right. talking about welfare, welfare reform. Right, and he did it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, Newt Gingrich said welfare queens, and the Dems just enacted the policy he that he yeah. wanted. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But it's he a, did do that stuff with Jesse Jackson and Sister yeah. Soldier, right? Like a lot of dog whistling. Um, but yes. Yeah. I don't even remember what the, the rest of my point was, but that's basically... Yeah. No, it was great. <laughs> I have a question for Malika. So in your piece, you point out that there, there was a huge drop in black voters in Wisconsin from Obama to Clinton. Yeah. But how much of that can we say is economic anxiety versus mm. uh, voter suppression? Because mm-hmm. there was that in Wisconsin. There was that study that there was like uh, 23,000 uh, black voters who were, who were kicked off the rolls. In Wisconsin? Yes. So um, a couple of points with that. One of them is a caveat that my article is not, you know, arguing for a causation. I'm not making any attempt to be a data scientist. This is not a dissertation. I don't think that economic anxiety, I'm not arguing at least economic anxiety is a cause for why Hillary Clinton won. I'm saying that there is a correlation. So if we Mm -hmm. see that this is the state where Bernie Sanders performed the best amongst black people, if he had a very strong economic platform, if Hillary Clinton didn't even go to the state and she's a corporatist, if there's a history of collective bargaining in this state amongst the black people of being, you know, very familiar with a lot of these progressive policies of socialist mayors, mm. of democratic socialism amongst the black community. Mm. If we're seeing all these multiple factors, why isn't the, the Democratic Party asking why right. instead of just pinning it to voter suppression? point blank blank period and assuming that it's white Wisconsinites who shifted the election when it was really black people in Wisconsin who failed to show up um along with other who did who didn't show up voter shame yeah yeah exactly I didn't yes I definitely I I definitely want to vilify I know yes because the whole point of the article is to humanize people who have been vilified right um so it was them along with progressive whites who stayed home um so there is I will always talk about voter suppression. I think that it's always going to be a factor as long as the black people live in this country where there's white supremacy and they think that there's some threat of another. But when you look at the studies in Milwaukee, 
the uh, that study is looking at something from the University of Wisconsin Madison, and they're estimating that based on the number of Black people who are in certain counties and where voter turnout uh, lowered, mm -hmm. where it declined. But it's not asking why they actually stayed home. It's just assuming that because that it was a higher black county, then it must be the reason why they stayed home right. because of voter suppression. Can I just ask a follow-up question? Because I, I do think that there's this narrative that is very unhealthy, like you're saying, about voter shaming. Yeah. Um, it's no one's fault. Obviously, it's 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 about who the messenger is and whether they're speaking to that audience. There's also this this message that's out right now that white woman, you know, come get your what is it? What's that article that was out the other day? White woman, oh. come get your by a white people woman, or something right? like. Yeah, oh, no. it was it was it was blaming white women, and I'm a white woman, so you know whatever. I'll I'll take responsibility for my people. Yeah. But the Greeks is <laughs> the Greeks. But is that is that something that is true, or is it you know they they blame white women for voting tr for Trump and bringing Trump you know into mm -hmm. office, but. Is it is it is it causation? Let's go. You know, it's a it's a half truth. So of course, white people voted for Trump, but they also voted for Mitt Romney at about, at about the same margin. They voted for George Bush at about the same margin. Basically, every Republican president six Nixon, sixty percent have white of white people voted for them, and Trump received the same margin at sixty percent. So to me, that's not really telling the full picture. If we're talking yeah. about a consistent narrative. White people tend to vote for white interests, so that's not new. Or perceived, or perceived, perceived white, or what they believe, or racial stuff, not economic stuff. I mean, that's a whole other thing, right? Right. right. But what they perceive to be the white yes. candidate right. is how sixty percent of right. white people vote in every presidential election. So to me, the story wasn't about that because that didn't change in twenty sixteen. Obviously, he was more mm -hmm. explicit with right. his racism. Instead of using a dog whistle, he used a bullhorn, and right. we're still seeing that right now. To me, the story was about the fact that the Democratic base was not energized enough. So in three states decided the election. You could either say Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, that's the Democrats generally, or Wisconsin, Michigan, and Florida. Hillary Clinton had less of a black voter turnout in those three states. If she had got just a little bit more of those votes, as Obama did, she would have won the election. So... And yes, it was close that is, in Florida, too. It was close. Yes, it was. And I think Ben Jealous said on, on our show that, like, if they had spent a quarter of the money that they spent on media on registering black voters, um, it would have been a total game changer. There was this anecdote. Um, it's been written about now, but it was sort of a secret for a while that some of the people who were on the Bernie campaign went um, into the transition team, well, not for Hillary, but they were working at the DNC and helping out with the Hillary campaign. And they wanted Bernie to run around and campaign for Hillary in places like Wisconsin and Michigan and, and Pennsylvania. And the backstory, and I think it was in the Daily Beast, maybe like a couple of weeks after the election, uh, where the title was, can I swear? Um, Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Okay. okay. Thumbs up. Uh, they didn't fucking listen to us. Was the title? Right. Yeah. And part of that was a group of of Bernie and I was, was that in that you? room. I was in the room. Were you the cursor? Uh, I was the cursor. Yeah. But there was a bunch of us in the she room. Drops the f bombs a lot. <laughs> I do. It's, good. it's actually kind of funny. It's true, yeah. I didn't swear until I was like twenty. You're making up for lost time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they they we sat in a room and we talked about what it would take to win over these states because we knew that people were angry at Hillary and they were staying home. And so we warned them and said, you got to talk about uh, criminal justice reform. You have to talk 
about fracking, you have to talk about uh, TPP, and when you line up those issues, that's five or six points. Furthermore, we found out that that transition team, they wanted Bernie to run around the country, and they wouldn't pay for his flight. You know, he would fly on commercial air. What? Who cares now? I can say this stuff. No, he I'm not shocked for saying I'm shocked He was flying that. on commercial air, and it was delaying him because people would stop him. He'd have to go through security. So they right. said, could you just put him on one of the planes, the DNC planes? And they said, no, 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 we can't afford it. And then at the same time, they said, well, then you just spent $60 million last week in Houston, Texas on one set of ads in one week, and you can't pay for $100,000 for Bernie Sanders to go win you the election. Right. But it's just, Jill Stein's fault. Right, yeah. right. And just a quick note. I want to look at the exact stat, but Donald Trump got about 400,000 more votes than Mitt Romney between 2012 and 2016. Um, that's what went to the Republican candidate, which you could probably attribute to just general population increases. Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, lost about 680,000 votes between 2012 and 2016. So 680,000 more voters showed up for President Obama. Right versus Hillary Clinton. And so why are we going around blaming like this huge backlash in, you know, these Midwest states when really the, the story is the story of non-voters? That's it. It's funny. I had uh, Leslie Lee on my show. He's a, a great guy. He's a great podcast host. He has a show called The Struggle Session. He also started the hashtag Bernie Made Me White, which was making fun of the media's representation of, <laughs> yeah. of uh, Bernie supporters. But we were just talking about this. I don't remember why it came up, but he said... Um, yeah, of course, the world, we have races. Oh, there was a study that said that Trump voters were motivated by racial animus or by racism. And we can talk about the study later because it's pretty bogus the way it is. Multiple it, it studies. Required. Yeah, but there was something like very recent, I guess. There, I mean, yeah. But he, I know but he said, he said, um, he says, yeah, we've been, we know that. Like, and the people citing this have been saying that white people are racist. Like, that's how we understand institutionalized racism. Why is that new? Right. And he also said that's not an excuse for losing to Trump. If Obama was able to get, win over these white racists, why wasn't Hillary? And he said, he goes, as a racist herself, Hillary should have had an easier time winning over uh, a white racist. But, you know, I thought it was, we can take that or lead that part. But, I mean, I thought it's true. It's like, yeah, how can people say that? Well, this yeah. is something, this is something that I've, I've taken a lot of heat for. Yeah. But, uh, Talking about about the connection between economics and uh, and and racism and the fact that oh right yes. when when you have a country where only twenty eight percent of Americans are considered financially healthy where seventy eight percent of American of full time workers live paycheck to paycheck and where most people can't afford a thousand dollar emergency and have no savings and live in debt and life expectancy is on the decline and these statistics I could go on and on and on but when that is when that's like your baseline and that's that's just considered normal and it's not getting talked about and your candidates aren't talking about right. it, like, yeah, they're gonna turn to somebody who offers them somebody to blame. And right. why and, and and this is something that has been it's been documented, like times of perceived, Holocaust, the Holocaust. Per, perceived yeah. scarcity change the way that we look at people of different races. Right. We see them as more other. I mean, this is this is so well documented, and it and, and in Germany and in right. Russia too. And it's also the like, idea that you're claiming that there's a narrative that if you say that you are co-signing racism, yep. which it's actually the trying, it's anti-racism which motivates people, I think, to make that point. You are trying to d diagnose one of the ways this happens, and it's not sugarcoating racism, and it's not saying it's only economic stuff, but we know that this stuff contributes to it. So why wouldn't we want to look at that and, and kind of make the case for explicitly? Also, you have to explicitly talk about class and race, or else people definitely won't come over 
to anyone but Trump. Especially, too, if the official opposition party has been co-signing that exact same dynamic for years. Like, as we talked about, Bill Clinton was a dog whistler. I mean, right. why do you think he gutted wealth uh, welfare in this country? Was it because he genuinely super thought... Super predators. Yeah. He's super, super predators. I mean, yeah. like, does Bill Clinton really think that ending welfare as we know it was going to help the country right. and help people? No. Like, like, that was a way to cater to white racist as right. it was when he attacked Sister Soldier, who at the time was a relatively like not very not very well known rapper. Yeah. I bet and I wonder he, if her records went up. I'm I hope it did. Yeah. I mean like because she was brave and basically he attacked her because she had a lyric about violence against Yeah. So like what was And so to get at Jesse Jackson. And yet you know, yeah. exactly so it's like it doesn't help that the Demo that the official opposition party has been co signing this for years and years and we have to point out that like I mean it like Unless we address the root of it and offer people an alternative, it's like not going to just – it's going to keep appealing to people all the more so if our leaders we supposedly identify with have been abetting it as well. Especially now with the demographic shift. I mean there – this country is becoming increasingly – people of color and and the white population is is shrinking and people see that – there are people that see that as a threat and this is something that – uh, I, a friend of mine was, was stresses a lot when in this conversation about economic anxiety and racial animus, but that's, that's a factor and that will only be seen as a threat if and it, there's, it's also a factor for people. Of, this is the thing I thought that was so important about your article is like, there's this weird false dichotomy that people of color don't care about economics, <laughs> which is like, where does that come from? And if you understand <laughs> racism, you get that that's like an extra challenge for people of color, right? Like capitalism is bad for everyone. And especially like the, the less straight white male you are, the worse off, right? The issue is it's not a total, it's not like only, uh, it's not like every straight white man is rich and every person of color is poor. But um, can you just talk a bit about like why you even felt the need? I mean, do you think that that, that is a view that's presented, this false dichotomy between race yeah. and class and talk? Yeah, there is a, absolutely a false dichotomy that I think erases black people from the narrative of the working class. When you think about blue collar voters, when you think about the Midwest, black people in the Midwest who have a pretty strong presence there, they have for the last, you know, maybe 50, 60 years since the Great Migration have been in the Midwest. And just to, you know, push back a little bit on your earlier statement about um, people choosing, I guess, fascism as an option, some people, white people are. So a lot of black people in the face of economic anxiety, many of them stay home. They're disillusioned. So I think when you have this combination, you know, speaking of intersectionality, when you have a combination of white supremacy and capitalism, then fascism is an option because you're used to white supremacy being able to comfort you in that time of need. You know, obviously... In a capitalist system, everybody is going to be, the masses of people are going to be suffering. But how we deal with that, I think as a nation, we need to confront in terms of recognizing that it's mostly white people who are doing this and why. And, you know, I think it's going to take some organizing to determine exactly how to make them realize that you're in the same boat with yeah, other poor people. Donald Trump doesn't give yeah, exactly. a fuck it's about the, you since we're... divide and conquer. Right. So, But just to clarify, I was talking yes. about among racists, like the fashion... I mean, I think that's what I was thinking about, at least. So, although I think maybe for... Anyway, does that make sense? Like, I was talking ex- about okay. white racists yes. before. Okay. So I think we agree. So, so this is an interesting but question. feel free to push back. We can have a debate. This is what I find fascinating about the, the rise of fascism happening right now. And, and, and everyone's like, well, it happened before, it happened before. You know, Paul Krugman's having panic attacks in the New York Times editorial. You know, and, and it's like the pitting of communities against each other is the fuel of the, the coalition of capitalists 
and the 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 white supremacists. And we've seen this before historically, right. time and time again. So if we do want to go back and see what happened before, then we have to see what these patterns were in which that capitalist coalition of the Mitt Romney world that is suddenly okay with Donald Trump because of the tax cuts and and the David Dukes can align, yet we're pitting Muslims against uh, you know the black community against Latino. I mean, just go around New York City and get everybody's opinion on the other group right. that's suddenly like Mexicans. Me- like yeah, oh my God, like, everybody's yeah. just eating each other alive. And I worry because I, I'm on a million different email threads from major organizations that the amount of fear that we are using to drive up donations and maybe some protests are actually not helping us in the long run. The short game might help the institutions, but it's not helping the movement. And I'm not talking about the activist movement, I'm talking about like how do we win versus how do we, Brett Kavanaugh is a perfect example. I mean, I. That week was exhausting for so many of us and emotionally It exhausting. ruined him. It destroyed him all the way to the, to the, win. To the Supreme Court. Yes. <laughs> and, and I think, I mean, that's it. But, you know, we were talking about Long Island. Long Island is the epicenter right now of Trump land, right? He's doing all these rallies in Long Island. And there have been a couple of really big wins for Democrats there. And a woman named uh, Luba Gretchen Shirley ran against uh, Representative King yesterday. And the Republicans poured in a shit ton of money into that district because Luba was amping up. You know, frankly, it was an identity argument. I like her a lot. She's a progressive, but like they were using a lot of identity. And that amped up the Republican base and the donations. And then they f- have way more money. And then as a result, down ticket lost. Mm. So you're, I mean, I think that something that's not that much of a mystery is that economic policies appeal to everyone and the working class, right? There's this, like going back to that false dichotomy, it's as if economic justice is inherently limited to white people or something. Yeah. And the and the Democratic Party has struggled to I think their struggle for identity I I think comes from the fact that they are corporatists. Right. And so what they do you do? Right. So class. what do you do if that is your, you know, fundamental right. ideology? So th- there are kind of similar circumstances like this in I want to say 1968 when Lyndon Johnson um he wasn't running again, and Robert Kennedy was assassinated. So then that led the way for Richard Nixon to be elected. When the Democratic candidate lost, the Democratic Party had kind of an identity crisis, and they realized that they could no longer capture you know, the rural white votes. Like, oh, they're, they're just going all the way, Nixon. Right. Like, all the way law and order, all the way racist, so let's take a step back mm-hmm. and focus on identity. But by looking at kind of black voters and... LGBT issues and kind of environment conservative, uh, like conservationalists, right. and not dealing with economic issues, they Which lost an, all those other things right. too. Exactly, they lost an opportunity to really be intersectional and say, okay, we can include these people. Some of them might actually want some progressive issues, even if they don't like the idea of progress scares them. They might still advocate for some of these issues, and by turning, you know. By making that false dichotomy, we've been in this continuous cycle where they're going back and forth between identities and not being intersectional. Well, you also had something else that happened in the 70s that that doesn't get talked about enough, and that was the Buckley versus Vallejo decision, which opened... Can you, uh, law law nerds, explain that? uh, Basically, the Supreme Court ruled that spending money is a protected form of speech under the First Amendment and is subject to strict scrutiny. So, essentially... And it struck down uh, uh, spending limits for independent expenditures. So you could you can spend on political ads that you make for yourself or whatever. You could spend as much money as you want, and you could air them as many times as you want. And that that 
paved the way for future decisions like Citizens United, which is which held that corporations have those same rights. So then corporations could start airing ads, and 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 that's kind of where we're at today. Just a mess of without getting into the every decision that uh, led us there. I have that right. No. Yeah, independent expenditures. So the independent expenditures are not part of the campaign, just to make it very clear. Yeah. So campaigns still have campaign limits, but independent expenditures do not because they have they're a form of free speech and they're a corporation. They're yeah. structured as a corporation, so now C C fours and That's the really dangerous one. Five twenty sevens. The fact that these these uh nonprofit or organizations uh that don't have to disclose their donors can just run unlimited ads. But it these this this decision I think facilitated a shift in the Democratic Party to embrace uh, big money in a way that it hadn't before. I mean, this is the the Democratic Party uh, of FDR of the New Deal of of labor, the Democratic Party that uh, Truman stood against the Taft Hartley Act. I mean, this is the war on poverty. Yeah, right. and 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 that went to the wayside. Yeah, and all this coincides with, meanwhile, an attack on organized labor. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right, and so, which means, okay. so, which then requires, like, money to come in from elsewhere. So it comes in from corporations. So let me put, ask everybody, I mean, do we think that real mobilization of people is possible at a t- insofar as organized labor remains so weak? I mean, and, and so and, tied to uh, the Dems also. Strong opinion. Sorry, on this. sorry. They, they are, Let me not divert your question. They are very tied. To, it's, it's true that that the leaders of the labor movement are very tied to the Dems, and then which compromises you know, them. Yes, and the compromises yeah. of the labor movement. Sorry, yeah. keep, keep, your your question was more generally about how can we, with the weak labor movement, what are the options? Yeah, and I mean, right? I mean, you look. I mean, doing your piece in Wisconsin, where there is like a a rich labor history. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Um. I'm sure I do. I'll, I'll let Nomi well, speak well, first. That's I, when I went to Wisconsin, that's what I covered in, in January, was the fall, the collapse of labor. I mean, that was the, the, the test case for Republicans, you know, um, killing the labor movement at, at, in Wisconsin where it was born. I mean, the labor movement NAFTA. was, what was that? I mean, it's later, but NAFTA, well, just throwing yeah. it back to the NAFTA, but I mean, but, yeah. but I'm saying like they, they wanted to rip apart Wisconsin organized labor, which is the strongest in the country, and they did. And then they decided to take it to Capitol Hill. And so Randy Bryce defeating the speaker, uh, you know, making him step down. Randy Bryce didn't win, but he he basically killed the guy who like lived off of Ayn Rand politics. Right. Was very symbolic and strong. But at the same time, I mean, in terms of of organized labor, what does that mean? Organized labor is. Eighty-five percent uh, weaker than it was fifteen years ago. The largest wow. donor, of the Democratic Party, in terms of labor, is the teachers' union, and charter schools have inf- have have taken over our Democratic Party. And where you see splits between um, these centrist candidates like Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, you know, really the buck stops at, at charter school money. Mm-hmm. That's where they. But one more fact that I think is really, really, really important for us to keep in mind in terms of movement. You look around the country. The same time the party, the Democratic Party, became centralized. They took money away from state parties. At the same time, the Koch brothers started infusing money into uh, state parties for the Republicans. And they started attacking unions at the state level. So not only do we have a weak Democratic Party, we don't have the infrastructure to train people. So there's, there's a reason why we're falling for the same mistakes that we fell for decades ago. Because we don't have people out there, union leaders out there, organizing and recruiting uh, strong organizers because they just don't exist anymore. So candidates 
literally don't know who to go to and they're making really bad mistakes. Yeah. You know, and going back to white supremacy that we were talking about before, I was speaking recently to the historian Gerald Horn of the University of Houston, brilliant guy. He was saying, I don't have the data to, um, to, to, ex to explain this, but he was saying that there is a correlation over history, especially over in the 20th century. There's a correlation in his mind between the appeal of white supremacy and nativism and xenophobia and the attack on organized labor. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, it makes sense. And also because I think organized labor, though it's had its racist history and obviously periods, but it's one of the main ways to combat or mitigate racism. I mean, I think people learn about their common interests when they're in a union together, which is not to dismiss the racism that still happens um, among organized labor, but it's one way to mitigate it. And like you were saying, if, if you can't talk about class because you're a corporate party, then what else do people have to turn to? Right? Yeah. White, I should say the white people who are racist. Like, if you don't, if, if you need to compete with the racist narrative. And one of the ways you do that is with a class based narrative. Um, I think we're running out of time. Does anyone have, a, like, a f guys want to make, I don't know, final word? Midterms. Uh, midterms. Uh, what about them? Just the word. Oh, I mean, oh. I, I just, I wanted to reintroduce the word midterms. Midterms. We yes. Went into, into 20th century into history. The, yeah. Into the, oh, midterms. So, <laughs> yeah. so uh, well, really quickly. Um, you said, Nomi, that you think that there's too much of a focus on national on the presidential candidates and the elections. Of course, but we also can't reinvent the wheel. Just and and there is like a leadership role. And I'm not. I know I'm. I'm. Mean, it's cliche, but I think Saint Bernard did create some. Um, is somewhat responsible for some of the progressive. Not not me. Uh, not me. Us. So not just him. But I think that he did help popularize a moral of clarity and moral vision. So, and I think that in turn has to be reinvested in terms of infrastructure and energy to the rest of the party, right? So it's not just one person, but people respond to stories, and I think they respond to characters and figures. And that's, it's like, you need to have the infrastructure, but that per se won't defeat Trump. It's not like the Dems are going to be like, I'm excited about this town hall. Um, it's, yeah, exactly. So who do we think, who do we want for 2020? We'll leave it on that. And wait, who do we want for speaker as well? Oh, sure. Yeah. That thing, too. Yeah. Less important. I haven't thought that far ahead. Honestly, I'm just not here for Democrats. Elizabeth generally speaking, Warren. So. Warren? No, no, I think she lost she that. Hired, that, that I mean, uh, no. That sh I'm kidding. That ship, yeah, sailed. Uh, my, here's my, I think this will speak for itself. The candidate who's been able to build a movement across all 50 states, that's what's going to defeat Trump. Trump has a movement. Trump has an infrastructure in 50 states right. with the Republican Party and their infrastructure and his weird movement agenda. You know, th that partnership was brilliant for Donald Trump. Didn't win him the midterms, but it's going to win him the presidency again. So whoever is going to be able to compete with Donald Trump needs to have a partnership of ideas, infrastructure, and a movement. And appeal. And, and maybe that, and I think there's only one person. Katie Halper. Katie Halper is our next president. Or Are you Bernie old Sanders, right? I'm is that what you're saying? Age. Oh, oh, Bernie, yeah, I, I guess that guy too. Is that? Oh, I just want to make sure I wasn't missing it. It'd be funny if you were like um, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Yeah, yeah the only um, hope Clinton, that yeah. Democrats yeah. have is Debbie Wasserman yeah. Schultz. Donna Shalala. Well, she thank you, thank you guys so much. We have to, we have to wrap up, right? We could well, be wait, here. Wait, 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 before we get, wait, wait, Barbara Lee for speaker. I was going to ask. How'd it be about that? How about Barbara Lee and Bernie as co as uh, running together. You see them appearing together. It's amazing. Oh, they've been doing that. Yeah, they Where did have been together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like re. Mm. Oh no! So, uh, of course, Barbara Lee for speaker. I mean, you know, of yes. course, it'd be incredible. Okay, so, BLS. I mean, do we have a second choice? If if 
If, I mean, she's I think great. it's just she's so she's obviously she's so she's obviously the, yeah. In case in case of emergency, break glass and uh, no. yeah, yet another I, fascist emergency. It, I need it's, to. It's got to be her. Like Pelosi, the, I'm sorry, oh but you come in and uh, you spent two years ensuring that this election was going to be a referendum on Trump, and then the first thing you say is we're going to strive for bipartisanship. Oh my gosh! What? Yeah, you're right. She what? said that today. What? She also said, I think she said, "Let's hear it for pre-existing conditions," which obviously she didn't mean it that way. But I thought that was like the best line. Can we stop saying "blue wave" now? Who are these it people? Was, yeah. yeah. What what should we call it? I'm just done with that. Like, if I hear, if I see one more little blue wave on Twitter, oh I'm gonna lose God. my mind. Well, at the state level, there was a, it was a wave at the state level. Well, I mean, here in New York, but well, not well, in every no, state. Across the country, it picked up seven governorships, and they they cracked the the GOP uh, like hegemony at the at the state level. It's it's now in 2020, they're facing a much less of a climb to have a real say in the redistricting process, which will begin the next Nowhere, year. I hate to, this is where I'm going to be the downer, nowhere near where it should be. No, given our, absolutely given our numbers. not. So I, I, the wave thing kills me because there are people in states who, who really need democratic leadership and don't have it and probably deserve to given their population. And I just, I don't know who these messaging geniuses are in the Democratic Party is setting expectations unreasonably high and then like, you know. It's more of a, like a an ebb and flow. Instead well, of a wave, it should, it should have been though. They should they should have they should have performed better than they did. I think right. ob objectively, in certain races, they should get a new DNC chair. They, yeah, and, and uh, a new oh another good thing. Keith Ellison won. That's good. Oh my gosh, he yes, Attorney Payback. General of Minnesota. I don't. I'd rather have him in Congress. But what are you gonna do? Um, and he you, could have been Speaker. Yeah, Barbara or uh, Keith. Keith. Oh, that would have been great payback. Yeah, yeah for for Tom Perez and. We'll talk about that next time. But what about you guys? Any final thoughts on 2020? Besides the Katie and, and Nomi. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I didn't mind that at all. Let's just do that. Um, for 2020, I think we need to be thinking about grassroots organizing more. I think regardless of who we're going to be electing, as I mentioned earlier, politics is not a panacea. So no matter who we get in office, a lot of times these elected officials are going to be a figurehead at least on the national level. So when it comes down to local organizing, I think that's going to be key. I think it's also going to be key in terms of, you know, not just building a movement for, you know, more people who lean left, but also movement for radical transformation in this country. Without that, I don't think we're going to be able to see the systemic changes that we really need. I'm kind of a single issue pundit, which is that I hate Russiagate. Right. I think Russiagate's been a disaster for the left. I really hope we drop it. Uh, it's, led to, you know, venerating intelligence officials right. who don't deserve the our FBI veneration, like Jim, like Jim Comey. Um, it's led to focusing on a conspiracy theory mm -hmm. and banking on that to solve all our problems. And I think the sooner we get rid of it, the sooner we can get, uh, we can have the energy and, and the space, the focus to work on the important things. And it's also led to a total hysteria among the media and like new, I mean, the, the smearing don't of Don't attack my soap. Like you. <laughs> Like Aaron, you get this a lot. People are so vicious. Are because, you a bot? Yeah, you're We're a Russian bots, bot. Boonus, right? But I mean, that's I think one of the scariest things we've seen is people just pick up lines with no evidence and run with them. That to me is really today. scary. What was they that? They said that they bought more um, Russia. I mean, this is what the media is claiming. I, don't know if I heard it on CBS that there was another wave of like Russia trying to infiltrate um, oh elections God. through social media, but not as high as 2000. Mm. So they like shut down all these accounts. <laughs> yeah. All right, oh, yeah. now I feel safer. Well, and now yeah. Donald Trump is going to lose, obviously. And Jeff Sessions is gone, so 
Right, exactly, my faves. Well, I saw an article in Vox that was like, uh, prepare for Benghazi times 10 or something like that. Like, we're going to scandalize Trump. Like, there's going to be investigation after investigation if you don't like it. We didn't even talk about how much that actually helps his popularity because Dems cannot cannot comprehend that people have a different world view from them. And when people see people, exactly, when people see other people talking about Donald Trump like he's an unprecedented evil, they just identify more with him. He's just more of an outsider. He's can, more of a rule breaker. He, he's more of a bad boy. Yeah, and like, do we need more proof that he's a shady, yeah, awful exactly. person? Like, we know that, but the fact the fact that that's true hasn't really translated exactly. into right. any big political victory. I think so. the biggest way you defeat him is, besides having good opposition and good things that you're running for, is also you highlight this, the economic stuff. You say he's not keeping jobs here. You undo all of his xenophobic America first um, saving jobs uh Narrative. As my father always says, you can win the point and lose the argument, and 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 yeah, I mean Trump is Trump is uh, and and to quote another friend of mine, he says Trump is made of mud, and the more mud you throw at him, the bigger he gets. That's really good. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Um, Well, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say goodbye to you guys, and then ask you to uh, tell us where people can find you. So, Aaron, thank you so much. I don't know why I have to make a dramatic goodbye. <laughs> Till next time. That's thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, where thank can you. people find you and your work? Uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, Aaron J. Maté, uh, and uh, I'm at The Real News, uh, therealnews.com, and I write for The Nation magazine, The Nation, and um, I think that's it. Yeah. Cool. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Miss Jabali, M-I-S-S-J-A-B-L-I. I always have to spell my name out because right. I've got one of those names. And uh, my writing is in Glamour, Essence, Cosmopolitan, all over the place, current affairs. So, yeah. And read her article, The Color of Economic Anxiety. Hi, uh, I'm Nomi Konst. I'm running for public advocate of New York City. You can find more about me everywhere if you're in New York. Uh, please donate to my campaign. We have matching funds in the city. <laughs> no, but seriously, we do have matching funds in the city. So every donation up to $175 is six times that until the end of the year. And then it's eight times afterwards because we just passed a charter revision. NomiKikonst.com, N-O-M-I-K-I-K-O-N-S-T.com. Same thing on Twitter, same thing on Instagram. Thank you for letting me solicit. Of course, yeah. <laughs> I may have broken um, a law or two. <laughs> uh, I'm Katie Halper, KT Helps, letter K, letter T, H A L P S, uh, on Twitter and on Instagram. And you can check my show, The Katie Halper Show, on SoundCloud and iTunes and all that. And uh, I'm Walker Bragman. You can find me on Twitter and at uh, Walker Bragman. It's super creative. And uh, you can read my stuff at Paste. And come back next time. Woohoo! Yeah. Thanks, Thank you guys, guys for yeah, coming, this and we hope that you'll yeah. join us again. Yeah, same time, same place. Uh, Best philosophy class ever. Yeah, this is good, right? We'll be more punctual. Yeah. Yes. Although we're the left, that's how we roll. <laughs> no. Alrighty, bye everyone. Thank bye. you. Thank you, Pace Politics. See you next time. <laughs>